All right, so this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, continuing our Summer in the Movies sermon series. Uh, when this morning, we're going to be talking about Disney's uh, most recent movie, uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. And so I watched this with my kids, and it's actually like a pretty good movie. Um, and if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to give you an overview of what happens. And by overview, I'm going to tell you like everything that happens. So spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the whole plot. All right, just prepare yourselves for that. So uh, Raya is this princess uh, in the land of Kamandra. And it is sharply divided between these five different nations, and they've been at war with each other for a really long time. Um, and all these nations are also under siege by these like evil spirits that turn people uh, to stone. And now legend had it that this magical dragon named Sisu uh, used all of her magical powers to create this like magic gem. And this gem was what helped defeat the spirits a long time ago. But in the fighting amongst all the people, they broke that special gem, and now they were under attack by the spirits again. And so um, Raya sets off on this quest to find Sisu to help her, uh, to get her to put this stone back together so they can have these magical powers again to defeat these spirits. Now, when Raya finds Sisu, she learns the truth that it wasn't Sisu that had all this power. And in fact, Sisu ends up kind of being like a little bit of a klutz dragon, okay? And what she finds out, it wasn't this one dragon that had all this power. It was all these dragons that united together and put all their energy into coming together. And that's what created this magical stone that helped defeat uh, the spirits. And so her quest changes from going um, to get Sisu to do this to now she goes to try to unite the five different nations to get them to come together, to get them to give up their little piece of this broken stone so they can all come together um, and, and, you know, and save the, rescue the people. Um, and there's this really great... Uh, scene at the end, again, spoiler alert, okay, we're in the movie, where uh, the main characters are all kind of trapped in this room, and all these, like, evil spirits are circling around them, and they all have this, like, one little piece of the stone, and, and it, it lets them just have enough power to, like, defend themselves, but there's no, there's no hope, because it's just, all they have is just, they, they can only take care of themselves, but they can't defeat all these things around them, and so in this really powerful scene, uh, Raya finally says, hey, everybody, give me your stones, I can put this together, we can, we can do this, and of course, they're all like, well, if I give you my piece, then I'm going to turn to stone, so nobody wants to do it, and then finally, she says, okay, somebody's got to take the first step, so she walks over to the antagonist in the story, reaches out, hands her the piece of stone, and then she gets turned to stone, and then in sequence, all the other characters do it. And it's this really powerful scene of just everybody coming together and having unity uh, to take care of this problem that they can only do by uniting themselves. And as I was watching this movie, you know, I was thinking, like, wow, like, you, this is, it's such a timely movie uh, with this theme of unity, because with everything that our country's been through, like, it was, it was so powerful to watch that. It was just perfect timing. But you know the thing is, when it comes to the theme of unity... It's not just a timely message. Unity is also a timeless message. Because when we talk about uh, unity in the body of Christ, that's a message that goes all the way back. And this morning, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about this theme of unity uh, in the body of Christ, in the, in the church. And when we talk about the church, I want to kind of set a ground rule that's going to help give some context for everything we're talking about. Uh, when we talk about the church, the Bible actually kind of talks about two different churches, okay? There's the local church, which is a group of believers that come together to worship together, to serve together, to love each other. Um, that's a, lo a local church, just like River Ridge is a local church, just like many other churches in our community and all over the world, they're local churches. There's also the church, and when it talks about the church, we're talking about the universal church. All believers, past, present, future, everybody all around the world, we're all part of this universal body of Christ. We all are part of this big, the church. And so when we're talking about unity in the church, the question is, 
you know, which church are we talking about? Are we talking about the local church? Are we talking about the universal body of Christ church? It's both. And I want to make that point because what I'm talking about this morning, it applies to the person sitting next to you. It applies to the person sitting across the room. It applies to the people who are out in our community at other churches right now. It applies to people who are in other countries at other churches right now. It applies to people all over body of Christ. It's both right next to you, and it's also the big picture of everyone. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about, um, we'll talk about this idea of unity. And so here is the, here's the message uh, this morning. It's this famous quote by St. Augustine. You may have heard this before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That's the message. If we can do these things, like we're well on our way to having unity uh, in the church. And so this is a pretty famous quote. St. Augustine may or may not have said it. There's really just kind of one of those things. Nobody really knows. They think it was him, but it could have been any number of people. And it's a famous quote. I'm sure you've heard it before, or you may have heard it before. But what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to use this quote as kind of the outline for the message this morning. We're going to break up all three of these parts and look at what Scripture says about each one of these ideas and talk about how we can apply this idea uh, in our lives to be more unified in the body of Christ. So before we go any further, I want to pray for us. Father, I pray um, as we look at your word this morning, God, that you just speak to us um, all, uh, open our hearts, God, to what you want to uh, say to us, what you want us to hear, God. And I just pray you um, just bless our time together and just help us grow and learn uh, from you, Lord. Always sing in your son's name. Amen. All right, so first, in essentials, unity. And if you have our Bibles, let's open up to Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. And we're going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning, so if you have your Bible with you, this is going to be a great message to get it out and kind of flip through and follow along. So this is Romans 16, uh, starting verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Lovell <laughs> says, you know, avoid them. Stay away from them. It's pretty blunt. Let's look at another one. Let's look at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Sorry, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to have one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's jump down to verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for the works of the service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by every cunning and craftiness of the people in their deceitful scheming. And so what these verses are talking about, and there's so many other verses just like this throughout the New Testament, the idea here is that when the Bible talks about you know, one faith, one body. The Bible does not teach that 
unity is all go along to get along, okay? When we talk about unity in the church, it's not unity just for unity's sake, because if we're not united around something common as the body of Christ, then what are we really doing? You know, I like to look at it, I like to think about uh, if you've ever been to the symphony, okay, before the symphony starts the program, the orchestra comes out, and there's one instrument that starts to play that A note, and then you hear the whole orchestra swell in and everybody's tuning to that common A. It doesn't matter if your instrument is tuned to itself. If the whole orchestra isn't tuned to one thing, to one common thing, then the orchestra's not gonna sound good. It's not gonna function like it needs to. And the body of Christ is just like that. If we're not tuned to one common thing, then we're never gonna be able to do the things that we're called to do. And so, you know, here's the question. When we talk about in essentials unity, well, what's an essential? And that's a tough question. I mean, Christianity has a ton of diverse thought, and a lot of really smart people have looked at some parts of the Bible and come up with uh, very valid and probably, um, you know, valid interpretations of what some of these sections say. So what is, what's an essential? What are one of these things that, like Paul said in Romans, like that we would need to keep away from somebody that's teaching something different? Um, and this is, it's a hard question. And, and, you know, I like to think of it uh, this way, and there's a whole lot of, of kind of tests or ideas about what's considered an essential point. And one of the ones that I heard, and I think it's kind of a good one, is it might be an essential point of Christianity um, is that if, it, if it's a point that transcends time and location, okay? So if it's something that the church would have taught 200 years ago and still teaches today, or the church here teaches it on Sunday morning and a church in Africa is teaching it on Sunday morning, if everybody, regardless of time or place, culture, or language, is teaching something, then that probably means it's an essential of the faith. Another pastor I heard um, called it the main and the plain. They said the essential points are the main points in the Bible that are plain enough that they are universally recognized by the vast majority of Christians. You know, we can look at like the traditional creeds in the, in the Christian church. The creeds are the things that Christians have been repeating and saying together for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the fact, one thing I learned this week is the word creed actually literally means in Latin, I believe. Um, you know, we have the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And I would love to go through and spend time going through those uh, this morning. I don't have time, but my challenge for you this morning, if this is something that you really want to dive in uh, deeper and to grow and have a better understanding about, I would encourage you just to Google those and look those up and read them and spend time going through line by line, trying to understand what each of these lines is talking about. If you want to go deeper, that's a great place to start. But the bottom line here is that unity has boundaries. If we aren't unif unified around something, that's not really unity. That's just appeasement, okay? Unity has boundaries. And non-essentials, liberty. For this section, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Before we read, I want to give you a little context about what's going on here. So the book of Corinthians was written to um, Christians living in the city of Corinth. And Corinth was a, a very diverse uh, cultural, social hub in ancient Greece. Um, there were all kinds of different pagan temples and, and pagan religions in this, in this very large and diverse uh, city. And now part of a lot of these religions, they had animal sacrifices. And it was not uncommon for these animals that were sacrificed to end up the food getting sold in the markets for people to eat. Or also, you know, you're at social functions, and it was so intertwined between, like, the social functions and the religious functions that sacrificed meat was just a big part of, of the food chain uh, in Corinth. 
And so you had this really big problem that came up, and it's actually such a big problem that Paul spends like multiple chapters in Corinthians talking about this specific issue because it was such a problem in the church in Corinth. And so let's pick up with that uh, in mind. Let's pick up in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't the person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way or wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that that will not cause them to fall. And so we know from a lot of other passages that Paul writes, Paul clearly believes that Christians are not bound by the Jewish traditional dietary restrictions. We know Paul strongly believes that. And so when you come to this, you know, you had this problem of, of recent converts um, in Corinth. I mean, you can imagine how this would have been an issue for them because if, if you're trying to get them to, to, to leave their, their pagan practices, their worship of idols, and you're talking about, hey, when you become a Christian, you become a new person. And, and, and they're, you know, trying to become a new person. They're trying to get away from that. And then they see uh, one of their leaders uh, engaging in a practice that from the religion that they just left, it would be confusing. They're saying, I, I thought I'm supposed to be a new person. That doesn't look new. That looks like my old life. I, I'm really struggling here. And so it was a big deal. Now, what does Paul do, though, when he talks about engaging these people? Clearly, he has a disagreement here, uh, a, a, a theological, a doctrinal disagreement with the people about what's okay and what's not okay. But here's what Paul does, and it's very enlightening for us. Does he argue with them? Does he tell them they're wrong? Does he refuse to eat with them over this disagreement? Does he accuse them of not being good Christians? Does he blame them for, you know, if you would just study the scriptures more, if you were to go to church more, you would understand that this is not, that this is not, a, that this is not okay? Does he, does he do any of that? No, he doesn't. What Paul does here, he says, you know what? It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about them. If this is something that they struggle with, if this is something that they're wrestling with, then Christ gives us the freedom to love others and to put others first. Paul wants to see them continue to grow, continue to mature, continue to have a great relationship with Christ, a great relationship with each other, and he doesn't want to be the thing. He doesn't want to be the thing that causes somebody to be discouraged and turn away. He says, it's not about me, it's about them. And so how do we apply that today? We learn that just some things, some things are just not worth the fight. We offer believers liberty when it comes to non-essentials in the faith. And again, we talk about what are non-essentials. It goes back to the point you just made. If it's not something that's, that's universal in terms of transcending time or location, it's probably not an essential aspect of the faith. If it's something that's not main and plain from the Bible, it's probably not an essential aspect of the faith. And so I'm going to go on a little tangent here. I'm going to talk about politics. But don't worry. This applies to, like, everybody. I'm trying to offend everybody here, okay? This isn't about one side or the other. So just say that up front. I'm an equal opportunity offender right now. So in politics, there's something called wedge issues. Wedge issues are issues that are designed to divide people, okay? They are designed because you might have somebody that says, you know what, I really like this candidate. I really like this person. I agree with them on almost everything, but I would never support somebody who believes in that or does that. So I'm trying to wedge that voter from their candidate to my side with one issue. 
And wedge issues are extremely effective because we know that people have very strongly held beliefs. So why should the church care about wedge issues? We are a voting block. We are a large voting block. We are an effective voting block. We vote. The church is a prime target for wedge issues. And I say all that to make this point. Sometimes the things that are meant to divide the church or are dividing the church are meant to divide the church. They're trying to divide us. But they're not trying to divide us over an essential doctrinal faith issue. They're trying to divide us so that somebody can maintain or obtain or keep political power or make money off of the church. Now, we have to be aware of that. And I'm not saying that we can't have deeply held principles. I'm not saying that we you know, can't have honest disagreements. And I'm not saying that some of these issues are not important because some of these issues are very important. But what I am saying here, what I am saying here is that we need to take a hard look at efforts from people on the outside of the church who are trying to divide the church, not to make the church better, but for their own gain. We need to resist when somebody outside the church is trying to divide the church over something that's not a faith or doctrinal issue because we need to be able to give some people some liberties when we disagree on things. We can't demonize people. We can't refuse to talk to them. We can't call them names. We can't make it us versus them because we have to remember that when it comes to the church, gang, we're all on the same team. We're all on one team. We're united under Christ. We're united under these faith issues. We're not united under a political party or a political candidate or issues or anything like that. We are united under the church, under Christ. That's where our unity is. We have to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. And we have to better behave on Facebook, okay? I'm just saying. I've read some of your comments, okay? We have to do better. All right. In all things charity. See, that wasn't bad, right? We talked about politics. It was okay. All right, Colossians 3. Verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And so here's what I think is interesting about this passage. Like, prior to preparing for this message, if you think about, okay, you know, how do you be more unified? Or how do you have unity? I say, well, you be more unified. You know, that's how you are unified. You're just unified, right? Makes sense. And once you're unified, then you can love people better, right? That's what I would have probably thought before I prepared for this message. But what we see from this passage is that unity is an end. It's not a means. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Forgive each other. You bind all of those things with love, and then what do you get? What's the result? You get a unified church. On the other hand, if you aren't clothing yourself with compassion or kindness or humility, you're not using love, then unity is just not going to be there. No matter how hard you try or how much you try to fake it, it's just not going to be there. And the point here is that maybe unity is a great measure of how well we were doing with the other things that we're called to, react, or to interact with each other. When we're loving each other, when we're forgiving each other, and like when we're really doing these things, not just saying it, but when we're actually doing these things, 
Unity is a natural outpouring of those actions. So regardless of whether it's an essential or non-essential aspect of faith, we just love people, I think the rest of it will take care of itself. So now I want to talk about the why a little bit. And, you know, usually you put the why on the front end of the message, but when I was preparing for the message this morning, this point just really it kind of floored me. So I wanted to wrap up with this idea. So we're going to look at John chapter 17 now. And so here we are, uh, here, here's where we are in the story. So John chapter 17, so the Jesus and the disciples get together, they have the Passover meal, Jesus washes their feet, there's this beautiful te- moment of teaching uh, where he's kind of giving them his last, like, hey, this is the last time I'm going to talk to you. It's just, it's a beautiful part of the Bible, it's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Just, if you haven't read it, just read it, I mean, it's, it's, it's so good. So Jesus, is, Jesus teaches his disciples, and then he goes on to pray for them. And so this is where verse 20 picks up, chapter 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So who's he talking about here? He's talking about us. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. All believers that would come to know him. When I was preparing for the message, this part just like floored me because I, I never really thought about it this way. But I mean, did you know Jesus prayed for you? Have you ever thought about that? Like Jesus prayed for you. That's crazy. Think about that. And do you know what he prayed about? Right before he was arrested, right before he went on trial, right before he was beaten and crucified and resurrected, the last thing that he did before he was arrested was he prayed for you and I. And do you know what he prayed for? Do you know what he spent those final moments praying for? My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought together to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as I, or even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer for us, for the church, was that we would be unified, that we'd be in complete unity, that we would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. And so how are we doing with that? Are we united or are we divided? Well, let's look at the measure of what uh, Jesus said in here. How can we tell what's, if they're united or divided? He says, you know, the world will know that you have sent me because they are united. And I think here's what he's saying here, is if they are unified they will stand out. The world will look at this group and they'll see this diverse group united around something. And they will say, there's something about those people. Because he knew the church would spread across different regions, different races, different languages, different worldviews, different economic classes. Romans, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, slave owners, the powerful, the weak. If all of these groups can be unified around something, there would be something to that. People would give notice to that. People would recognize that. If you're not united around something, it's just they're not just like one nation or one political ruler or one king. 
it's, it transcends all of that. People would take note of that. And so I asked this question, do we stand out for our unity? Can you tell any difference between how believers interact with each other and non-believers interact with each other on the question of unity? And I think a lot of times the answer to that is no, or at least not as good as it should be. See, we are divided. How do I know that? Because our country is divided. And I don't see any difference with how we interact with each other that have differences and how non-believers interact with each other that have differences. And frankly, sometimes we're the worst. So how do we do a better job with this? I think it's all about perspective and seeing others as Christ sees them. You know, one of the most convicting points that I've ever heard about loving one another is this. You know, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I'm not saying that the issue that that other person is dealing with is a sin, but maybe, just maybe, for us to have some perspective, to think about other people the same way that Jesus thinks about other people, what if we, in that disagreement, what if we told ourselves, while they were still, insert the blank, Christ died for them. While they were still a liberal, Christ died for them. While they were still a conservative, Christ died for them, okay? The person you are fighting with, you could spend eternity with them. You are going to spend eternity with them. How petty do we have to be to not put aside some of those non-essential differences to have unity with our brothers and sisters? And this is just a thought to help us, and I mean, I say us because trust me, I mess, I, I'm as bad as anybody about this, okay? I mean, just this week, as I was preparing for this, that I was thinking about, I was going to use that quote. I cannot tell you how many times this week I was like, oh, Christ died for them, Christ died for them, Christ died for them, Christ died for them. I mean, you really have, it's really a challenge for us to think about other people like that. Guys, Jesus loves you so much. Jesus loves them so much, too. That's a great place to start. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and I've loved them even as you loved me. That's Jesus' prayer for us this morning. In essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Let's pray. God, you call us um, to be one, to be one body, um, a body that's active in this world, and a body that goes out and loves people and uh, tells people about you and serves you. God, we know that sometimes we uh, can't do those things well if we are too busy fighting amongst ourselves about things. So God, I pray this morning that you would just um, give us all a sense of the value of unity in the church and how important it is that we love each other just like you have loved us, God, and how important it is that we look at each other the same way that you uh, look at us, God. Uh, Father, I just pray that you put that sense on our, on our hearts this week and let us all wrestle with that question about how we can be more unified and how we can each be individually uh, part of that solution, God. I pray all these things uh, in your son's name. Amen.